0: When some advocates of social justice B claim that justice is a gospel issue, they actually seem to be distorting what the word gospel means. Of course, our Reformed confessions rightly relate law and gospel, and they show that in light of the gospel, right Christians seek to bring glory to God and to show their thankfulness to him by striving to obey his law. But social justice B does not generally distinguish law and gospel carefully enough.
1: A happy American Thanksgiving to all of our U.S. listeners. I want to welcome you and all of our other faithful listeners to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable podcast. This is a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. You're listening to episode 108, and I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Rev. Andrew Compton continues his review of Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus Williams, where he looked at Williams' assessment of the gospel question and social justice, and what this book may even be saying to conservatives.
0: The second thing that stood out to me about, uh, about Williams' book, uh, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, um, is in chapter 9, uh, Williams talks about what he calls the gospel question. He asks, does our vision of social justice distort the best news in history? Now, on the one hand, later in the book, he laments that many of his friends uh, who have embraced social justice B are no longer interested in evangelizing. Um, for them, the Christian gospel itself is no longer something of really great value. And and actually, what's, what's quite interesting is that... Um, Another recently published book, this one by sociologists George Yancey and Ashley uh, Kosek, um, they have published on the fact that so-called progressive Christians are um, are different from so-called conservative Christians um, in that they're they're more interested in spreading their beliefs about a humanistic ethic of social justice than they are about trying to urge people of other religions. Um, to embrace the truths of Christianity. Fascinating new book. We can't do that here, but uh, their new book is called One Faith No Longer. Anyway, but on, uh, it was released to Williams, though. On the other hand, uh, Williams' chapter about the gospel makes a great distinction between the indicative and the imperative. This um, he, he really unpacks the difference between gospel and law. So when some advocates of social justice be... Um, claim that justice is a gospel issue; they actually seem to be distorting what the word gospel means. Of course, our Reformed confessions rightly relate law and gospel. Um, they show that in light of the gospel, right Christians seek to bring glory to God and to show their thankfulness to Him by striving to obey His law. But social justice B does not generally distinguish law and gospel carefully enough, and so. Um, Williams has a great paragraph on page 113. He says, So what happens when we make social justice not a mark of consistent Christian living, but a requirement of the gospel itself? Consider the tens of millions of victims of modern-day slavery. The good news now entails the imperative, work toward the liberation of human trafficking victims. On this scheme, you are saved by God's grace through Christ, plus your efforts to end modern slavery. And herein lies the existential conundrum. How could we ever know if we had done enough to end this violent, dehumanizing practice to be saved? There's a qualitative difference between fighting the injustice of slavery to become saved versus fighting the injustice of slavery because you are saved. If we confuse the gospel— the indicative announcement of the salvation accomplished on our behalf through the death and resurrection of Jesus, if we confuse that with the imperative to help human trafficking victims, then the good news is no longer good news. We find ourselves right back in the hopeless plight of works-based righteousness. It's a great quote. I was struck uh, a few years ago, a minister friend of mine told me that another minister in his denomination stood up at one point in a meeting and declared, I am not a gospel minister, I am a justice minister. Now, if, if we were to read that most charitably, maybe he's he was put that, that minister was pushing back against a narrow version of the Christian faith that sees Christ's work as as merely a way to get individual souls saved from hell. Right? He he may have wanted to show that greater um, cosmic redemptive new creation goal and that God had in mind in redemption, and that God accomplished in the resurrection of the Son. Um, but, but notice how that language, though, um, of saying, I am a justice minister, notice how that actually works at cross purposes to the Bible's own gospel message. I mean, look what, um, look what Williams says on page 114. He says, In a culture gripped by a social justice B mindset, we find ourselves in the same unwinnable game. Social justice B professor Richard Day speaks of our infinite responsibility by which we can never allow ourselves to think that we are done, that we have identified all of the sites, structures, and processes of oppression out there or in here inside our own individual and group identities. And look how Williams um, like analyzes that comment by Richard Day. He goes on to say, do you see how this becomes a game no one can win? If everything is unjust all the time, since Social Justice B interprets all inequality as injustice, we end up in the chronically frazzled state of mind well described by an ex-radical who said, infinite responsibility means infinite guilt, a kind of Christianity without salvation. To see power in every interaction is to see sin in every interaction. And all that the activist can offer to absolve himself is Sisyphean effort until burnout. Or Sisyphus was the one, uh, right, pushing the rock up the hill, uh, and it const- just constantly falling back on him. Williams also draws attention to how the creator-creature distinction, right, something that's that's stressed by Reformed theology, how the creator-creature distinction is missing in social justice B, and how that too has a devastating effect. He says on page one sixteen, social justice B offers no grace, no forgiveness, no open doors to paradise. Why? because it ignores the most important distinction there is, the creator-creature distinction. At the top of a Christian worldview, we find a creator who is not only just, the ultimate standard by whom all our actions must be judged, but also the justifier of his creatures. Citing Psalm 103 verses 8 to 10, "...the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever." He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Williams goes on, um, says, What happens if we erase the creator-creature distinction? Instead of standing before a quick-to-forgive creator, we stand before our fellow creatures. Instead of having a God uh, willing to take the nails in our place, we face a quick-to-anger mob, ready to drive digital nails to crucify us for every sin against its ever-evolving standards of righteousness. So again a powerful uh, powerful uh, thing that he also uh, gives us in this book is that that careful distinction between law and gospel third thing though that stood out um, in this book is that even though confronting injustice without compromising truth is highly critical of social justice b and and though it's quite conservative in many of its theological and political formulations. In fact, I mean, I'd say it's conservative in all of those formulations and, and political uh, types of things. At the same time, it's not a book that's trying to excuse Christians who are insufficiently attentive to injustice, um, nor, nor is it letting conservatives off the hook, okay? The, the majority of his critique is against progressives, but that's because Social Justice B is, is chiefly a progressive movement. And by critiquing that movement so extensively, he's understandably critiquing progressivism quite extensively. Um, But the fact that he does offer some important critiques of conservative errors and conservative idols, I think makes this a really balanced and important work for for Christians to read, right? There is racism, there is true injustice, uh, and there are ways that the ordinary Christian can be an agent of change in those very situations. Uh, for example, on page 29, he writes this, The political right has its own idols. These include but aren't limited to stuff, solitude, sky, and the status quo. What he means by those are are like um, stuff, meaning kind of cons- the consumeristic crony capitalist mindset that can that can take over uh, solitude. He's referring to that unhealthy individualism that that fails to consider how our choices affect others. That that isn't loving to others, but is is at at root self serving. Um, when he says sky again, it's that that view of salvation as merely a sort of uh, a card to get individual souls out of hell. And when he says the status quo, he's referring to how we can fail to pay attention to important needs around us that we need to address. So he he sees these as as the idols of the right. And he notes too how um how we as conservatives can often fail to listen to people who are suffering. Right? Sometimes conservatives start hearing stories of prejudice and, and partiality, and they right away dismiss those as, as like woke propaganda. Um, page 140 um, cites a blog post by a black Christian hip hop artist, Shy Lin. That was heavily shared on the internet right after George Floyd, and and Lynn drew um, some critique for this at the time because people felt he was jumping on board the grievance train and he was buying into progressive approaches to microaggressions and things like that. But I found it fascinating how Williams responds to the Shy Lynn story. He says, "Why should we listen to such heartbreaking lived experiences? Why take them seriously? Because we're Christians." Because we worship the God who told Moses at the burning bush, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. Right, This is the same God who says of the oppressed, I will surely hear their cry, and if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. William says, God listens, and so should we. Now, of course, um, having said this, and, and I'm not trying to weigh in on Shylin's statement as such, I think Plenty could be said about that. Plenty has been said about that. But, but having said all this, Williams does note that social justice be versions of listening often cause more harm to oppressed people. Now look, he says this, we're still on page 140, but he says, this is where tribes thinking, oh, tri, when he, he, uh, tribes thinking is sort of an acronym that Williams uh, uses to describe the woke approach. He says, this is where tribes thinking becomes attractive to many Christians today. It markets itself as stepping into the painful lived experiences of the oppressed. But genuine Christian listening is not the same as hearing lived experiences in a social justice B kind of way. There are important differences. I, man, I wish we had time to talk through this section because it's incredibly insightful. Um, Williams does note how social justice B primes people. To see injustice everywhere and to respond uh, with high stress like Defcon five levels of anxiety, I even watched a video earlier on YouTube by uh, by a blogger and artist named Kimi Katiti, um, who has in the past talked about ways in which the woke worldview exhausted her emotionally. But the video I saw today was her uh, walking around Los Angeles and um, and showing people. Um, how, in her old way of thinking, in her old woke way of thinking, she would have interpreted all kinds of different encounters as microaggressions. It was a fascinating kind of commentary on what a um, what a woke microaggression sensitive worldview um, could do to ordinary uh, discussions. Anyway, uh, Kimi Katiti is an, an interesting interesting individual, and, and just uh, shares some really interesting stories as a black woman who. Um, has left the woke mindset. In a lot of ways, she is a lot like the people uh, who contribute to the end of Thaddeus Williams's chapters, but that's a bit of a side note. Williams does note, right, how social justice B can prime people uh, in this way, and he also describes how how social justice B's approach to listening is is often more concerned with being on the so-called right side of history— a phrase that that Williams says is so easily deployed uh, to feel good about ourselves and demonize our opponents, Um, it's more concerned with being on the right side of history than being on the right side of truth. And interestingly, John McWhorter's new book, Woke Racism, even says that failing to point out the truth to someone who has a a skewed reading, a skewed interpretation of their experiences, John McWhorter says it infantilizes them and it treats them... um, as so dim that they just don't know any better. Again, John McWhorter is a a black writer. But here is is another place where uh, Williams' warning to conservatives I think plays out well, right? Social justice B people tend to be triggered by various kinds of words, but he notes that conservatives can stoke fear with their own trigger words too. Uh, Look what he says on page 144. He says, Psychological oppression is not just a risk for those on the left. For Christians on the right, Be careful not to play the same cruel games in reverse, raising generations to live in chronic fear of those evil secularists, liberals, Marxists, evolutionists, immigrants, homosexuals, or whatever. As Christians, we must do better. Fear must never be a prime motivator in any thoroughly Christian justice. We must not teach any ideology, left or right, that pumps enough wattage into people's uh uh-oh centers to light up Times Square. Um, that phrase, uh-oh center, by the way, is what Williams calls the um, the amygdala in the human brain. Um, he says, that would be mean. That would not be loving our neighbors. So I guess in... in conclusion here. I mean, I found, I found the book to be chock full of helpful illustrations. It was chock full of solid answers to the claims of, of these woke, critical approaches. It was a, a helpful expose, even, of various techniques that a lot of social justice B advocates use um, to guilt people and, and to try to coerce them into well, doing their bidding and to coming on board their, their uh, worldview. Williams offers a whole range of statistics and data sets that do challenge some of the progressive assertions about the extent of systemic racism and oppression in Western society today. Now, again, to to be clear, because you kind of have to say this today, right? He doesn't deny that there is racism and partiality. He doesn't deny that there are institutions that are committed to racist policies, right? But remember, um, the fact that people who cite statistics undermining uh, the claim that American institutions are as racist today as ever, the fact that people who do this are accused of white supremacy shows how deeply entrenched the social justice be ideology is all around us. But what's so helpful about these kinds of statistics, whether cited here or, or in other books like, you know, Vaudi Bauckham's book, Fault Lines, giving all kinds of examples and, and counterexamples, right? What's so valuable is that they help us to stay focused on real injustice, real racism, quantifiable partiality, real lovelessness that exists in communities and organizations and churches and cities. And at the end of the day, um, what makes this such a great book is that really is Williams's goal, that Christians be equipped to confront injustice. Right? It's significant he didn't just call his book a critique of social justice, B., Right, there's a place for that. Um, Owen Strand's new book, Christianity and Wokeness. right? It's riffing on J. Gresham Machen's famous title, Christianity and Liberalism. right? Strand's book is an example of that kind of focused, um, apologetic, and polemical book. But with William's book, what makes it so com- compelling is that he really is concerned to help Christians think about confronting injustice. And I think in the end, that's what makes his book such a great success and why it is that Thaddeus William's book, Confronting Injustice, Without Compromising Truth is my go-to book recommendation for Christians who are trying to get a good grasp of what is going on in our society today. So I think in closing, look, I I think it's worth your time, and I, I do hope
1: you'll consider picking it up and
0: giving it a read.
1: there is plenty more that Reverend Compton wasn't able to cover about this fascinating book I encourage you to read it and reflect upon it uh, either on your own or even in a small group there uh, are plenty of discussion questions at the end of each chapter in this book it's been a great uh, blessing to myself um, i've read it before and i hope that it would be a blessing to you as well next week president of the seminary dr Cornelis venema takes us on a three-part tour of a very important matter that we see happening in the church today and that is the discussion around homosexuality to begin though He's going to lay the foundation for the inspiration of Scripture, and I hope you'll be able to join us then. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.